is Our American Stories, and for the hour, the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. The Godfather was a classic. The Sopranos, wow, what TV. But you want to talk a movie that left a mark? Goodfellas is a 1990 American biographical crime film directed by Martin Scorsese. It's an adaptation of the 1986 nonfiction book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi. The film narrates the rise and fall of mob associate Henry Hill and his friends over a period, well, almost 25 years, from 1955 to 1980. But after wrapping his first feature film, Mean Streets, in 1973, Martin Scorsese never saw himself making another gangster movie. That is, until he picked up the book by Nicholas Pileggi called Wise Guy. Here's Scorsese and Pileggi on how Goodfellas was set in motion. Having dealt with that world to a certain extent, I felt, therefore, I never really wanted to touch upon that world again. But I, I found that the, the style of the book was so interesting, and I tried to say, boy, if I can make a film like the style of this book, because what's the point of making another gangster picture? There have been several books about mob bosses, but it was like getting a hold of a soldier in Napoleon's army. That's who I wanted. I wanted to know how it worked inside. Detail, detail, detail. Everything is detail. I was interested in the minutiae of how to live as a wise guy. I wanted to get into the, the frame of mind of a guy who works that way every day. And you also had the voice of Henry. So much of that book was just his telling the story. So Marty called and he said, uh, hello? He said, yeah, my, my name is Marty Scorsese. He said, I'm a film director, a movie director, I think he said. And I, he said, do you know, and I said, I know who you are. And he said, well, I'm calling it because he said, I just read your book. And he said, I've been looking for this book for years. I said, well, I've been waiting for this phone call all my life. So he said, I want to do it. But he wanted to write it with me, but he couldn't make a deal with me. So he said, don't worry about it. The deal with you is on the phone now. We will make this movie. Don't you worry about anything else. I hadn't put my name on a script since Mean Streets. And I wanted to create an exhilaration of that kind of life. Now, when you're working with Marty, of course, he already sees the movie. I didn't, but it was all right. He brought me along. You know, I did most of the typing, I don't know, but he writes longhand. So I would type, and then it would come out, and then he would scratch these little things on it, and we would work on it, and, we'd end, and the dialogue would be bounced back and forth between us. So we would, we would develop scene after scene. In this scene, this is what's going to happen, then we go to this. And he also said, put in the corner, put in the corner, and he would mention a piece of music. I want that music here. And anyone who has seen a Scorsese movie knows how much the music drives the movie. Nowhere is this fact better exemplified than in his Goodfellas picture. For Scorsese, who carries a music library in his head, he hears the music while he's penning the script. You know, we did our jobs and, you know, we had great makeup and they made us look all whacked out. But talk about music and editing. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Push up Marty had such great ideas about how to put music to, to some of those images. When we were writing, there's that scene where Bob De Niro is standing at the bar with a cigarette, and he's looking at Manny, and he's going to kill him. And you know he's going to kill him. And Marty has this shot, and he gets closer and closer and closer, and Bob's eyes get more wolf-like. It was just the most terrifying picture. And as I'm typing that stuff, because I'm the typist, he says, put in cream, put in cream. I said, what cream? He says, just write, ta- write down cream. I said, What's, what cream? Who are you talking about? Just put it, just put it, put it, put it. Do me a favor, just put it. So I typed in cream. Well, it turns out, while we're typing that scene, he's already listening to the music. So now, 
you can't, I can't interpret that. I can't tell you where that, it's all intuitive. It's all part of whatever comes out of him. Now I look at that scene and when I see it, it's just, it's an amazing scene with that music and that close up of Bob. Conway, uh, the De Niro character, he decides at that point, being annoyed by all these people around him asking for their cut of the job, the Lufthansa robbery and all that stuff, why should he give it to anybody? Why shouldn't he just keep it all for himself? The only way to do that is to give uh, his friend, you know, Tommy, Joe Pesci's uh, character, a little sort of nod, wink, in a sense. You see that in his eyes. And we shot that, I think, at 32 frames a second or 36 frames just to get, I don't know. I didn't know what I was going to get. But then when I saw the rushes, I saw that gleam in his eyes. And I synced that to the guitar from Sunshine of Love right to that point. Some of it, he just, he put into the film in the editing room. He has a deep sense of how music should go with a film. And by that, I don't mean that, that, uh, that it should go easily. Sometimes it's a shocking choice, uh, but it works like crazy. I kind of see everything with music, especially the juxtaposition of the type of music you're listening to, to the images that you see out the window, and that sort of thing. And I, I said, that's the way music should be in a movie. That was the first time I'd ever seen anyone shot. You remember where you ever heard first? Oh, I I usually, yeah, usually a piece of music. I remember when I first heard it. Where, you were with your mother in a butcher shop. Or... Yeah, yeah and um, he'll carry those pieces of music around for years and then suddenly find exactly the right place for that piece. Each shot was designed to certain bars of Layla. We had the music already played on the set to get the right rhythm for the movement or for the length of the scene. And when I got in the editing room, then I had to make sure that I was trying to get exactly what he wanted. He was very specific about how he wanted the music to cut. Let's try this. That's really on the way. Yeah. Right here. We're starting. Goodfellas was one of those films that uh, I felt we rode like a horse. It was so beautifully scripted and shaped by Nick Pledge and Marty that it had its own energy, it had its own drive, and as Marty was laying it down, it just had an incredible feeling to it. So we were sort of riding it and trying to stay on top of it and stay ahead of it if we could, but it was so strong. It had such a rhythm. And when we come back, more on the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. This is our American story. And as always, we take you on some diversions and some side trips on some of the most iconic artists, movies, music, and Goodfellas. It doesn't get better. More after these messages. I'll soon be with you, my love. Surprise. I'll be with you, darling, soon. I'll be with you when the stars start falling. Hey, 
stands on golden sand and watches the ship that goes sail. This is Our American Stories, the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. We continue that story. The three main characters were played by Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, who got the role after Al Pacino turned it down, and Ray Liotta, who only had four movies under his belt, but beat out Sean Penn for the role as Henry Hill. Paul Sorvino, who was cast as mob boss Paul Cicero, had no problem finding the voice and walk of his character but found it challenging finding what he called that kernel of coldness and absolute hardness that is antithetical to my nature, except when my family is threatened. Here's Sorvino on how he struggled finding the dark realities of his character. That I didn't think I could do it, because it was not the kind of role that I felt I really had an affinity for. The externals were easy, a middle-aged Italian man. The difficulty was in the lethality that I felt I didn't possess. And so even though I wanted to do it, I was sort of faking when I went to the meeting and giving Martin the impression that I knew exactly what to do with it when I had no idea what to do with it. But I wanted so much to be in a Scorsese movie. I guess he just figured I was capable of it. And uh, it went, it was about two months uh, in preparation to try to get this quality that I knew it called for. And I was kind of agonizing over it for a couple of months. I was thinking, I'm going to ruin this movie. I was looking for something to get out of it until two days before we started production, by virtue of constantly searching to find where that kind of quality that killers have. Uh, I was preparing to go out one night, uh, passed by the mirror to check for spinach in the teeth, and uh, I jumped back. I, I literally frightened myself. I saw a look in my eyes that frightened me. And who was that? I said, that's Polly. And once I found it, the role became just a duck in water. It just was so easy to do. That what Paulie and the organization does is offer protection for people who can't go to the cops. That's it. That's all it is. They're like the police department for wise guys. <laughs> in order to create the greatest degree of truth, reality, and believability in his scenes, Scorsese is infamous for putting his actors through improvisations. Here's the Goodfellas team discussing this playful procedure. So much of what Scorsese does is in the way he directs. Uh, and so you see something entirely different up on the screen often than is in that script. If I felt the scene could be opened up, I usually did that with the actors in rehearsal. So we would rehearse 35, 40 minutes a scene, uh, and they were all improvisations. They were very loosely around the script, just sort of what, would, what was happening, not improvising by writing lines. I mean, improvising behaviorally. He always says, don't act like these people. Behave like them. You know me. I would like to help you out. I hope so. Sonny, tell him what we talked about. He knows so well what actors need and how to help them. And then he'll see something he likes and he'll come over and say, you know, um, you know what you said in that other improvisation? Why don't you say that to him again? Or, or um, let him have it. Now go home and get your f***ing shine box. Mother You, you, he uses the power of the verb. Acting is doing something. I threaten, I charm, I beg. And what Martin does in the improvisation is encourage the doing of things. Well, that merely means stay with the other fellow and deal with what he's giving you. What are you, stupid? What's the matter with you? I apologize. What's the matter with you? Sorry. What the f*** is the matter with you? You feel like you're a real collaborator. He makes you feel that way. And in a certain sense, you are because you're giving all the good things that you have. And you see anybody f***ing around with this you're going to tell me, right? Yeah. 
That means anybody. He knows what he wants to do, but you really feel like you're creating and he's letting you go uh, to do what, what, what you've come up with. That's just the way he is. He, he's very open to a lot of uh, ideas from anybody. That was, for an actor, it was like the jackpot. And that was Lorraine Bracco talking, and it was the jackpot for everyone who acted in this movie. But the thing about improvisation is, for Scorsese at least, it's just a tool a tool that is used by writers to chisel out a very detailed script of dialogue for the actors. It can be said that Joe Pesci owns not only the most famous improvised scenes in movie-making history, but the most famous scene. Here's Goodfellas star Joe Pesci. You don't improvise on camera when we're shooting. They all think that Marty just doesn't do anything, that he lets the actor say, okay, go ahead, and he sits there like this, you know, and, and enjoys it. You know, it's not true. I mean, it's so crazy to think that you can go in there and make a movie like that. It has to be structured. You're still saying a script. <laughs> Gee, I wish I was big just once. <laughs> you're a big guy. You're a <laughs> really funny. <laughs> really funny. Uh, what do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> It's funny, you know, it's a good story, it's funny, you're a funny guy. <laughs> that scene in uh, uh, I Make You Laugh, uh, you know, I didn't write that, I get credit for that all the time, people want to give me awards. Well, you wrote that, I never wrote that, Joe made it up. What? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. You mean, so? man, let me understand this, I'm funny how? I mean funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you, I make you laugh. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? When Joe told the story that, that it happened to him about you're a funny guy, except he was on the receiving end of it, uh, we then improved it for a while in rehearsal and then locked it in. I'm not just... Do you know how you tell the story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. And that was very carefully worked on within our rehearsal period. I was able, as a, a co-writer, to record several takes, maybe four to five takes between Ray and Joe of this dialogue. I then took that and rewrote that, which was then inserted into the script. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? <laughs> it was interesting how he shot that sequence. He's shooting it in a medium shot, not in a close-up. And the reason I always tell film students this, that it's very important, is that, first of all, he knew the scene was powerful enough that he did not need close-ups. And secondly, what he really wanted to show was how the people around Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta were gradually changing the looks on their faces as, as the sense of dread began to creep into what was supposed to be a casual conversation and suddenly it is wonderful how you see their faces change and he was very adamant that that's how he wanted to shoot it oh, oh anthony he's a big boy he knows what he said what'd you say right. funny how and you just watch his body language and you know it's dead serious and it could turn on a, a split second Hard to cut. Marty and I spent a long time figuring out how long to wait until Ray Liotta actually says, Come on, Tommy. Funny. What the f is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the f out of here, to Tommy. <laughs> Your mother f I almost had him. I almost had him. Stuttering, yeah, stuttering prick yet. Frankie, was he shaking? <laughs> All the laughter you hear on the track is me and them and everybody. Because <laughs> we have to create an atmosphere of, of, of that kind of a moment on the set. And, of course, a lot of the guys standing around had no idea it was Joe was going to improvise at that point. So there were, a lot of those reactions were absolutely pure. 
The backstory to the story you just heard is that while working in a restaurant, a young Pesci apparently told a mobster that he was funny, a compliment that was met with a less than enthusiastic response. Pesci relayed the anecdote to Scorsese, who decided to include it in the film. Scorsese didn't include the scenes in the shooting script so that Pesci and Laota's interactions could elicit genuine surprise and genuine reactions from the supporting cast. By the way, the F-bomb is dropped 296 times during the film, averaging twice per minute, making it the 12th most F-bomb-laden film ever released. The script only called for the word to be used 70 times, by the way, but much of the dialogue was improvised during the shooting, where the expletives just, well, piled up. Roughly half of them are by Joe Pesci. After Pesci's mother saw the film, she said she liked it, but asked if he had to swear so much. And when we come back, we're going to dig into more of the story behind the story of the making of one of the great American gangster films, one of the great American films. And by the way, listening to that scene and remembering what it looked like, that that nervousness that turned into laughter. And by the way, if you've ever met one of these wise guys in your life, they live off the power of turning on the dime how your day's going. And that's what they love. They'll kill you. They'll make you laugh. But it's all about them. And they get this minutia beautifully in Goodfellas. More of the story behind the story of the making of Goodfellas. This is Our American Stories. Like the fella once said, ain't that a kick in the head? The room was completely black. I hugged her and she hugged back. Like the sailor said, quote, ain't that a hole in the boat? My head keeps spinning. I go to sleep and keep grinning. If this is just the beginning, my life is gonna be beautiful. I've sunshine enough to spread. It's just like the fella said. Tell me quick, ain't love a kick in the head. I couldn't feel any better or I'd be sick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Oh, yeah. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation. Actually, we continue the storytelling of the making of Goodfellas. And we just heard a great story about an improvised scene that became a part of a script that ultimately became, I think, the best scene in the entire movie. That showdown between Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci while the guys were hanging out in a bar and just having some fun. And it turned dark and it turned ugly, but that was just Joe Pesci messing around with everybody. But no one there knew it was going to happen. And no one in the audience did too, and that's what made that scene so good. And then there's Scorsese's legendary steady cam shot 
Just like the training montage in Rocky, the Steadicam is responsible for another unforgettable movie scene. It's one of the few shots in the history of cinema readily identifiable by name, instantly conjuring the image of Goodfellas. Low-level mobster Henry Hill, played by Liotta, leads his future wife Karen, played by Lorraine Bracco, and by extension the audience through the back entrance of New York's legendary Copacabana nightclub as Steadicam operator Larry McConkie glides along behind them. This legendary Steadicam shot through that nightclub kitchen was an accident. Scorsese, who didn't even like using Steadicams at first, had been denied permission to go through the front door, and so he had to improvise another plan. So how long did one of the film's most famed tracking shots take to pull off? It was in the can before lunch, which isn't to say it was easy. After all, the uncut shot lasts a remarkable three minutes and four seconds. Thank you, sir. All right, see you later. Thanks. What are you doing? You're leaving your car? I never even knew when we were making it what that scene was. I never knew. I, had, I was clueless. I'd never even seen a steady cam. And that doesn't exist in the book. But it does in just a couple of lines. Except a couple of lines in the book in the hands of the director, that's where you begin to see a nonfiction book in detail really blossom into a kind of art. How you doing? Good, good. What's up? There you go. The whole idea is that it had to be done in one take, so you don't feel that it was a series of cuts or but there was a separation between him and the world that he was trying to get into. The camera flowed through and, and just glided through this world. Just all, all the doors opened to him and everything just slipped away. It was like heaven. And then to emerge like a king and queen, this was the highest he could aspire to. It was kind of tricky also to get all the actions right because Marty is so very accurate about every single timing. You know, what the people do in the kitchen. The guy with the table comes at the right time and brings the table over. All these things are very important. But as far as I remember, we shot the scene only eight times and it was not even a full day. But we wanted it really in one shot and we got it in one shot. Take my wife, please. And that voice you just heard was that of comedian Henny Youngman. If you remember the scene, they get that great seat in the hottest club in town. And boy, Lorraine Bracco thinks she struck gold. And Henry Hill, he's living large. And Henny Youngman, of course, is the king of one-liners who played himself in that club scene. The reason that three-minute shot had to be redone eight times was not because of complications choreographing it, but because it ends on Youngman. But Youngman kept fluffing his lines, spoiling the close of the scene. Scorsese's attention to detail can be seen in all of his films, especially in Goodfellas. Here's Scorsese on the set of Goodfellas doing a wardrobe inspection on the actor who plays the young Henry Hill. Uh, the kid doesn't look like a gangster yet. He has to look. His shoes are going to be shined. Got a pinky ring, kid? Yeah. Yeah, that's better. Mm-hmm. I would like that just a little bit. We don't have any stays in the collar? Yeah, this one doesn't call for No stays, Christine? He was very obsessed about the collars that the mafia wear, where they're almost closed over the tie. And only his mother and father could, could actually press those collars properly. So Marty would reject actor after actor who didn't have the right pressed collar, and they would be sent back, and his mother would properly iron it. He tied my tie every day. 
the way he wanted the knot was very specific. And I guess from when he was growing up and every day he would tie my tie and, and, and get the uh, get the knot right. I think he, you know, he's very careful to make sure that it's believable. You know, he's all, he'll often say to me in dailies, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. It's the beautiful evocation of food. And he loves, for example, very tight shots of keys being put into locks and or doorknobs being turned. Because there are things that we do a thousand times a day but aren't ever celebrated in quite that way. They're distilled images, and they have a meaning. They have a real meaning for us, but that we don't even realize because we do them so many times a day. And what's so beautiful and dangerous about Goodfellas is Martin Scorsese's ability to get us, the audience, to sympathize somehow with the bad guys. But he doesn't leave us there. Scorsese's truthful portrayal of the human heart leaves us at the end of the film with real moral clarity. But the only way you can really be truthful about it is to really not be inhibited by anything. What do you mean don't be like I think it explains what the world is really like. And part of what's so interesting is that it starts out as a lot of fun. We're as bad as they are. We're happy to see the postman go in the oven. And all of a sudden, of course, when Spider gets shot, it all turns and it changes. I mean, he shoots that poor kid in the foot. You should know then, these are not, this is not the way to live. You don't be sucked in by these guys. Because it's only going to end one way before the witness protection program. It only ended one way. Death. It was the most frightening thing. I mean, I was out of my body for a minute, you know. I had to put myself in a frame of mind to really kill someone. I made them put full loads in the gun, in the 45, because I wanted to hear the echo. I wanted to feel the gun really kick like a real 45. The silence after the last shot rang out was more deafening than the gun. I think I brought more of almost like a documentary attitude towards it. I wanted to show you uh, the star of the movie is a way of life, not a character. Somebody uh, commented that uh, it's like Scarface without Scarface, but that's what it is. Yeah, we don't need Scarface in the film. You know, it's the way of life. If you grow up around that, um, what I wanted to show you was um, the danger of the exuberance of that kind of life at first, you see. The danger of the exuberance, the ex- danger of the excitement. When you're young, you think you're, you you're going to live forever, and you, you, know, you, you think you're tough, and you could take a few more shots in the head than somebody else could. And so you, you think you're tougher than the other person. Well, eventually, if you don't use your brain... You know, you're not going to wind up anywhere. And I think the the danger of the excitement of that lifestyle is what I grew up around, and I saw a lot of people uh, disappear because of that. Marty wants you to figure things out yourself. He wants you to come to the film and you to look at it and decide how you feel about it. He doesn't want to tell you what to think. He wants you to experience it. And I think that's what makes the film great. There's no judgment on these characters. We're the ones to judge He just gets it right. And if you've ever grown up near mobsters, and I've spent quite a bit of time, if you grow up near Newark, New Jersey, when I grew up, or liked playing horses like I did and go to an OTB in Brooklyn, there they were. And everyone loved them, but more importantly, everyone was afraid of them. And you always heard a story, and then every once in a while you'd see it. You'd see them beat the you-know-what out of somebody almost to death, and it would scare the life out of you. And they loved that. They loved it. I knew that wasn't my life. It was none of my friends' life. We stayed far away. 
were not attracted to it at all. But many, many impressionable young men drawn right into the life. No better movie about the life. I think even better than The Godfather. Because it wasn't as romantic. These guys are rough. And it's ugly. And when they're digging ditches and throwing guys in uh, into a ditch, shooting a kid in the foot over nothing, uh, you get the, the real sense that these are some pretty bad dudes. And that gun could turn on you in any minute. When we come back, our final segment on the making of Goodfellas. This is Our American Stories. Your love is all that ever mattered. It's everything. Boom, boom, boom. our American stories, the final segment, our hour-long celebration of the making of Goodfellas. And by the way, in the first season of The Sopranos, Tony's nephew Christopher, played by Michael Imperioli, shoots a bakery employee in the foot for simply making him wait. As he leaves, the wounded bread seller yells, he shot my foot. And Christopher replies, it happens. It's a nod to Imperioli's character Spider getting shot in the foot by Joe Pesci a decade earlier in Goodfellas. And if you remember, that kid working at the bar got shot in the foot for nothing. And that's, that's what both of those stories are about. I've got to also add that The Sopranos is really about the fall of the mob post-Rico. Because in the 80s, Rudy Giuliani came to town and there was a statute called the Rico Statute, which was an organized crime statute, which allowed everyone in the organized crime enterprise to go to jail for the crime of one because they acted in concert. And this was how they finally got the bosses, the underbosses, and everybody. And it was going to take an Italian to bring him down. And it was an Italian guy named Rudy Giuliani who was then a U.S. attorney. And he was fearless. And there were death threats, as you can imagine. But Giuliani, Giuliani fiercely remembered his father getting shaken down by mobsters and also hated the impression This was creating in Italian-American neighborhoods, and nobody was more a victim of Italian mobsters than Italian merchants who either paid the freight and had their hard work and dollars stolen from them or, well, bombs blew up. And my grandfather owned a pizzeria in Brooklyn, and he always had to pay the freight for the garbage, and he had to order a certain kind of cheese. And I would say, Grandpa, why? And he'd say, it's just the way it is. And they basically stole about a third of his profits every year. And then they'd give a little bit to the church and they'd have a feast of San Gennaro and, and everybody would pretend to like the mob, but they hated the mob and they were afraid of the mob. And it was a lot of fake respect they got on the streets because they were just afraid of getting shot in the foot. For a film renowned for violence, Goodfellas has a relatively low body count compared to today's standard, with a count of just 10, which isn't terribly bloody when compared to the 255 body count in Saving Private Ryan. 
Once the scenes were shot, it was up to Thelma Schoonmaker, Scorsese's editor, to create movie magic. We've been hearing from her throughout this piece, but here she is with Scorsese and Goodfellas producer Erwin Winkler discussing how the uncharacteristic editing at the end of the film shaped the film. A great deal of Marty's movies are made in the editing room, particularly The Last Day as a Wise Guy, as we call it. Last Day as a Wise Guy is, is a sequence that I think came together particularly in the editing room because we could, um, we found that we could express the state of mind that Ray Liotta was in at that time, being coked up and completely out of control. It was written in a lot of small montages, but it was never really visualized uh, on the script uh, the way you see it on film. For example, when Ray Liotta plunks the guns, the camera swish pans up to him. I just always enjoy all the strange jump cutting that we did, you know, uh, Ray Liotta making veal cutlets and and how we just uh, jumped around and just experimented and just had a hell of a lot of fun uh, violating every rule there is. During the previews, I got annoyed. The audience got annoyed, so I made it even faster, more relentless in a way. We can make it even more jagged. We can make it more fractured. And so we started doing more jump cuts. What I love about it is the annoyance at having to go bring the guns to Jimmy, knowing damn well Jimmy's not going to buy them. Stop with those drugs. They're making your mind into mush. That should put you in a position to say, what am I doing in my life? No, he's annoyed that I know Jimmy's going to make me bring this around. He's not going to want I'm going to put him back in the trunk. I'm going to have to go over here. I've got to stir the sauce. I swear this helicopter's following me, but that can pay attention to that. I think it is. No, it isn't. Picking up his brother. Drugs, coke, girlfriends. They're hiding guns in garbage pails. And it goes on like that. Everything seemed to be of the same importance. All on the same level. He could not differentiate at that point. <laughs> Total madness. <laughs> And it was total madness, and Henry Hill's life was spiraling out of control, chased and followed every, at every turn. Goodfellas was released on September 19th, 1990. Here's the initial reaction from movie critics Siskel and Ebert. Since 1976, when he directed Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese has stood, I think, alone at the top of the art of film directing in the world today. His Raging Bull was generally conceded to be the best film of the decade of the 1980s, and now with Goodfellas, Scorsese has scored another magnificent achievement. This is a great film, a film about Scorsese's favorite subjects, the great tragic subjects like avarice and jealousy, murder and guilt, and it ranks with The Godfather in his portrait of the crime syndicate. I have never seen even a movie by Scorsese that really wrapped me up so much into the world of the emotions of these people. A day, two days after the movie was over, I still myself felt guilty, I think identifying with the guilt of the Ray Liotta character, guilt not only that he did bad things, but the worst kind of guilt, which is the guilt that he still wanted to do them. He wishes he was still doing them. What I love about the film and what I like about Scorsese's work is he takes, in a very theatrical, exciting way, moral stands. Mm -hmm. He makes The Last Temptation of Christ. He makes Raging Bull about, he makes films about sinners mm -hmm. and finds the sa saints and sinners and sinners and saints. Mm -hmm. And this guy, he's saying about the mob, these guys are scum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He says it. That's so refreshing in an artful, beautiful way. It's a fascinating movie. It's a it's a great well, American film. Okay, I've seen it twice. I'm going back lots more times. And what okay. I'll go back for is small things, editing scenes, uh, the, the way he jumps in on dialogue. And my wife will tell you every time Goodfellas comes on, she can count me out of anything she has planned for the next two hours or three. 
It's just the way it is. If you watch it from the beginning, you can't stop. But come in the middle of it and you can't stop. Here's co-writer Nicholas Pileggi recalling how Martin Scorsese himself reacted to his own film on opening night. I mean, when Godfellas opened, uh, it was the opening night. And I'm there, Nora's with me, and Marty is sitting next to me, and Helen's on the other. And uh, finally it goes on. And it's Zigfield, and we're in black tie. And we're watching it, and I get, I get this elbow. I says, what? See, we should have cut that scene. That's, he's talking too much. We get, and it's Marty. We're in tuxedos. It's the opening night. You can't do anything. Forget it. Sit back and enjoy it. And he laughed, and we watched the rest of the movie. But even then, on the opening night, he's thinking about how he could play around with it. Yeah, and that's what all artists are. They're never really happy. They just got to move on to the next thing because they want to tinker with a little more. After the film's premiere, the real Henry Hill, who was played by Ray Liotta, was so proud of the movie that he went around revealing his true identity and boasting that the film was about him. He only had one problem. He was in the witness protection program. The FBI had to remove him from where he was and give him a new location. In conclusion, here's Leonardo DiCaprio articulating what almost all of us who have watched Goodfellas felt an experience. Goodfellas is one of those movies that whenever it comes on television, there goes my next few hours. I'm absolutely going to watch that. And that's what's so powerful about that movie in particular. And, and Marty's work for that, for that matter. There's something about the way he connects you as an audience member and envelops you completely into another world that you become entranced by it and the rest of the world dissolves away and that's the magic of really making movies the goodfellas magic has made such an impact on the culture that it has even penetrated into the cooking world which is no surprise considering the amount of time scorsese spends shooting and discussing food in the movie but contrary to the posh jailhouse scene where paulie advocates using a razor blade to cut garlic so thin that it will liquefy with a little oil, the technique in reality isn't very practical. The garlic tends to brown too quickly. The key step is that you must keep the oil at a lukewarm temperature. Instead of a razor blade, it's usually easier to mash it with a fork. Still, certain Italian cookbooks suggest you slice the cloves good fellas thin and to cook them low and slow. And by the way, just go to YouTube and Google the scene where they're cooking because there isn't a better scene in the history of movies about eating and food. And this is what Scorsese was great at doing, piling on these life details that bring you into the world, envelop you, and carry you away. And uh, let's take a listen if Jesse's got that. In prison... Dinner was always a big thing. We had a pasta course, and then we had a meat or a fish. Paulie did the prep work. He was doing a year for contempt, and he had this wonderful system for doing the garlic. He used a razor, and he used to slice it so thin that it used to liquefy in the pan with just a little oil. It's a very good system. Vinny was in charge of the tomato sauce. Ah, got the smell. Got treats. The kinds of meat and meatballs. You got the veal. Beef and pork. Ah, good, but you got out the pork. Oh, that's, that's the flavor. Ah, I felt he used too many onions, but it was still a very good sauce. 
And there you have it. And that's why we love it. It was the life. Scorsese's right. It wasn't about any one character. It was the life that was the main character. And boy, at the end of that movie, Henry Hill is just at a loss. He just can't believe it's over. It's the world he chose. And it's the world we're transfixed by. This is Lee Habib, the making of Goodfellas. Great job on this, Greg, as always, on these pieces. No one does them better on the culture, on the movies. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of the making of Goodfellas. our American stories and we love to tell stories about everything as you know and I think one of your favorites one of our favorites is when we talk about music and music's got that remarkable power to just take us places make us feel every range of emotion and so we've decided to do this day in music history each and every day with our in-house music guy our in-house music guru take it away Jesse This day in music history, 1955, Perez Prado was number one in the charts with his song Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White. Known as the King of the Mambo, the instrumental was the theme from the film Underwater, where Jane Russell could be seen dancing to Cherry Pink. Nineteen fifty-eight. After an earlier release on Mohawk Records failed, Dion and the Belmonts switched to Lori Records and released the single "I Wonder Why," becoming the group's first national pop chart hit. They would later go on to record songs like "Teenager in Love." And this day in music history, nineteen sixty-one, the classic song "Runaway" by Del Shannon took over as the number one song, bumping "Blue Moon" by the Marcells to number two. As I The song is sung from the point of view of a man whose lover has left him, and it was directly referenced in the Tom Petty song, Running Down a Dream, in these lyrics. Trees with 
Midnight special number A, 48, take one. One second. Also this day in music history in 1961, Bob Dylan appeared on Harry Belafonte's album The Midnight Special, playing harmonica on the title track. Bob Dylan was paid a $50 session fee for this recording, which is known as the very first official Bob Dylan recording ever. Well, I wake up in the morning, hear the ding-dong ring, you go marching to the table. This day in music history, 1968, Louis Armstrong reached number one in the UK with What a Wonderful World. I see trees of green. Making Armstrong the oldest act ever to hit number one. What a Wonderful World did not catch on in the United States until 1987. In 1968, the Beatles' then-new company, Apple Records, turned down the offer to sign new artist David Bowie. Apple later signed Mary Hopkin, James Taylor, Badfinger, and Billy Preston. And speaking of the Beatles, this day in music history, 1976, Paul and Linda McCartney spent the evening with John Lennon at his New York, Dakota apartment and watched Saturday Night Live on TV. Producer of the show, Lorne Michaels, made an offer on air asking the Beatles to turn up and play three songs live. Lennon and McCartney thought about taking a cab to the studio, but decided they were too tired. This was the last time that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were ever together. And in 1979, Ray Charles' Georgia On My Mind was proclaimed the state song of Georgia. The music to the song was written in 1930 by Hoagie Carmichael, who also recorded a version of the song in New York in the same year. Ray Charles, a native of Georgia, recorded it in 1960 on the album The Genius Hits the Road. The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Georgia on my mind I said a Georgia Georgia a song of you comes as sweet and clear as moonlight through the pines. And this day in music history in 2007, singer-songwriter Cheryl Crow said a ban on using too much toilet paper should be introduced to help the environment. singer suggested using, quote, only one square per bathroom visit, except, of course, on those pesky occasions where two to three could be required. Crow had also designed a clothing line with what she called a dining sleeve to wipe his or her mouth. It's very confusing. And born on this day in music history, 1942, Barbra Streisand, singer, actress, with the 1974 U.S. number one single, The Way We Were, 1980 number one single, Woman in Love, plus over 10 other U.K. top 40 singles and four other U.S. number ones. Also born this day in music history, 1982, Kelly Clarkson, singer who came to prominence after winning the first season of American Idol. And that's this day in music history. And as always, great job on that, Jesse, and thanks for reminding me about that that toilet paper (laughs) idea, Cheryl Crow's. That was a real winner. Really caught on. 
Thank goodness it didn't. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Jesse Edwards, This Day in History in Music. American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib, and we love small-town America on this show. Heck, we live in small-town America. We're based out of Oxford, Mississippi, a town of 20,000 tucked in the foothills of northern Mississippi, just south of Memphis. We always hear about big city life in the mainstream media, but here we like to go in the opposite direction by highlighting small-town and midtown life, the kinds of places, well, that make this country great. Our producer, Jesse Edwards, now takes us on a road trip to Bentonville, Arkansas, a town with a population of just over 40,000 people. On the road again, just can't wait to get on the road again, the life I love is making music with my friend, and I can't wait to get on the road again. Recently, I had the chance to talk with Creed Bratton from NBC's TV series The Office. It's an interview you can catch over at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Shortly after the interview, Creed invited me to come see his live show in Bentonville, Arkansas the next day. Although it's a 12-hour drive round trip, I took him up on his offer, loaded up the wife, kids, and the little dog the very next day. Driving 400 miles from Oxford, Mississippi, up to Memphis, Tennessee, across the Mississippi River and into Arkansas, we were now in flat country as far as the eye could see. On through Little Rock and 200 miles further up, we were into the Ozark Mountains and arrived in Bentonville around 4 p.m. The first thing we noticed was Walmart, or Walmarts. Walmart was everywhere. We saw a big Walmart, a medium-sized Walmart, a tiny Walmart Express. There was even a drive through Walmart. Yeah, it's a Walmart where you order online, drive up to the store, and employees bring groceries out to your car. Not that it all doesn't make sense. After all, Bentonville, Arkansas is the global headquarters of Walmart. We'll talk about all that a little bit later, because tonight we have a show to get to. With the sunset glowing off in the distance on an unusually warm late afternoon, we had a few margaritas and made our way downtown Bentonville to the Meteor Guitar Gallery. Now, the Meteor Guitar Gallery is an unmarked building built in 1905, situated just off the town square, it was used as a silent film theater for years. We arrived about an hour early, and there was already a line forming outside the building of people wanting to see the show. As the building became louder and louder and people began to trickle in, we were told that the beer on tap that was provided by Core Brewing Company would be free. And who doesn't like free beer? A few IPAs later, the room now full, the first comic, Ryan Baker, took to the stage and immediately noticed my two kids sitting in the front row. Remember, if you're not 21, please don't try to get beer or anything like that. Watching these two kids over here. They're sneaky. Next up was comedian Shauna Blake. So I recently discovered that no yoga I do can be considered hot yoga. 
that's just not really in the cards for me. Um, a friend of mine, she tried to drag me along with her recently to one of those hot yoga studios. Do you know the ones I'm talking about? Yeah, I realized pretty quickly I did not belong there because everyone there had a thigh gap and a top knot and I had a hangover and a half a cheeseburger in my purse the night before. <laughs> And the next stand-up at the show is Raj Shurish. We'll talk to him later on this hour. Take a listen. Indian men and Indian women get perceived very, very differently in this country. i got to tell you guys that, man. Y'all like Indian women. People in America love Indian women. They look at them and they go, wow, she's beautiful. She's pretty educated. She's got nice hair. And they look at me and they go, let me get a pick six and a big gulp. One dollar Slim Jim and a scratch off. And I'm like, man, I don't work at the 7-Eleven. This happened to me real life. The guy stopped me. He goes, hey, uh, could you help me out for a second? I'm having a little bit of trouble finding stuff in the store. And I was like, look, dude, I don't work at the 7-Eleven. And instantly, he's embarrassed. He goes, dude, I feel so bad. I feel terrible. I'm going to leave the store. I said, you don't have to do that. You apologize. It's all good. Go about your shopping. Do what you got to do. And once you're done, we'll, we'll part ways. And... No hard feelings at all. And no, dude, I feel terrible. I'm going to leave. I said, you don't have to leave. He said, I'm going to leave. I was like, okay, if you insist, trust me, I don't feel bad about it, you can leave. And he was like, yeah, once again, I apologize. And as he walked out the door, I was like, thank you, come again. It's instinctive. Live from the Meteor Guitar Gallery in Bentonville, Arkansas, after the opening comedians finished up their sets, Creed Bratton came out on stage playing his guitar in a way that only a comedian could get away with. He went on to play seven or eight songs, pausing in between each one to tell a joke or a story about his time on the set at NBC. At one point during the show, he recited one of his famous lines from The Office, where his character talks about just how crazy things were back in the 1960s. In the 60s, I made love to many, many women. <laughs> Often outdoors in the rain and the mud. It's possible a man slipped in. There would be no way no. Creed went on to perform his hit song from the 1960s, Live for Today. It was from the time he was with the band he created known as The Grassroots. It was a song that went to number five in the U.S. and number one in Australia and other countries when it was released as a single on May 13th, 1967. When I think of all the worries that people seem to find And how they're in a hurry to complicate their minds By chasing after money as I thought about where I was in this small town of Bentonville, Arkansas, in this old building, listening to people tell jokes and play songs, I realized that my family and I were sitting somewhere pretty special. Every place I've ever been over the years always had a very particular feel to it. What could be described as a certain vibe or even a spirit. Whatever it is, it's strong in Bentonville. The next morning after the show, I met up with the owner of the Meteor Guitar Gallery Eddie. to get his story. Take a listen. Hey, thanks for having me. You all right today? Me. You have a good time last night? Yeah, it was a blast. A really special thing you guys got going on here. Thank you. Yeah, that's pretty uh, cool. It was nice to finally have one go off good. And that was the first sold out. I mean, we've had that many people before, but we've never had that many ticketed 
280 <laughs> seats out. So yeah, that was yeah, packed. It all, it all went pretty good. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background, where you're from, what your name is, and what the what, what your title is here at the joint. My name is uh, Les Key. Um, me and my wife and two sons uh, started this place. Uh, uh, we started working on it back in 2013. Meteor Guitar Gallery. Yeah, Meteor Guitar Gallery. Uh, we opened the front in June of 14, and then we got the venue room open in uh, May of 15. Uh-huh. Uh, I grew up here and used to go to the movies here on the weekends when I was a kid, and then moved to Ohio for 20 years, and mm-hmm. this place sat vacant for 20 years, and then we uh, moved back to bring it back to life and get some music going in Bentonville. Nice. Um, What's the history of this building here? They built the building in uh, 1905. Uh, it was a, a couple of different businesses early on, and then in 27, uh, it had something to do with, with Ford Motor Company early on, but we're not totally sure on the history of that, but uh, we do have an original Ford Motor Company logo up on the balcony wall that was used from 07 to 27. Nice. And then it sold, became Ford Motor Company, and... Uh, at that point is when the Meteor bought it and turned it into a silent movie theater, vaudeville plays. Um, so it was the Meteor for, uh, I think, till about 39 or 40. Mm-hmm. And then it turned into the Plaza Theater and they started doing talkies, uh, regular movies, and changed it a little bit, added on the back and this you know, bigger screen and uh, added the projection booth, you know, modified it a little bit upstairs. Uh, and it was just a one-screen theater then until the uh, early 80s, uh, 84, 85. Um, then it was uh, a beauty shop in the front four rooms for about 10 years. Uh-huh. And then it just kind of went dormant and set for 20. Um, and we just, it, it was going to be a art gallery and small guitar shop and the venue kind of came later we mm-hmm. once we got in and saw how good the room sounded and we already had all the stage and everything to do it we just yeah, it kind of grew as we built it uh turned into a lot more and uh-huh. we we're working on getting a, our own radio station in here in just a few more months wow. we're uh in the final steps of getting city approval on our antenna and then wow. we'll be broadcasting a little hundred watt local station about everything going on in town and local music and probably blasting some of our shows out and nice. just having a good time with it. That's really cool. And we do comedy, music, uh, improv, uh, wedding receptions, all kinds of special events and birthday parties, and but probably 80, 85% music. You're listening to Our American Stories and I'm Lee Habib. When we come back... We'll hear more from the road and on the road in Bentonville, Arkansas, with our producer, Jesse Edwards.
This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. We now return to the town of Bentonville, Arkansas, with Jesse Edwards. Before the break, we heard from Les Key, owner of the Meteor Guitar Gallery. We now continue that conversation as we learn more about what makes this small corner of America so special. What are some of your biggest challenges opening up a venue like this? I can't imagine it's, it's exactly easy to do. Um, but are you getting a lot of support locally, or are you? How, how's that going? Yeah, we get we uh, we we definitely had some obstacles in the beginning when like you know, what? dealing with just dealing with a building that's been vacant for twenty years, yeah. and uh, and it was a little bit of an eye. You know, it's one of the biggest buildings downtown, so mm-hmm. being vacant, it was yeah, it was a little bit of an eyesore and a a little problem spot. So yeah, yeah bringing it back to life. Uh, and I did engineering and architecture for twenty five years and computer management, so. I trained AutoCAD for most of my career, mm-hmm. so coming into this, it was yeah just another day at the office kind of thing as right. far as designing it and getting it back to life. But uh, our biggest challenge has really been promotion. You know, mm-hmm. we we didn't know. I wasn't a music person or, or knew nothing about promoting a concert. You know, I loved them and loved music, but right. this was a whole new world. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we we didn't. Uh, we didn't look at how everybody else was doing it at all. Uh-huh. You know, I, I didn't even know where to begin. So we just kind of did it how we wanted to do it, how it worked for us, yeah. and uh, got lucky. And we're talking to Les Key, the owner of the Meteor Guitar Gallery in downtown Bentonville, Arkansas. Next, Les takes me to a room packed from floor to ceiling with just some of the guitars in his massive collection. A lot of oddballs and a lot of a lot of rare ones. Early Rickenbacker out there, from, or Rickenbacker before they turned into Rickenbacker. It was uh, 1934. One of the first models that they did. We've got a lot of autographed guitars, a lot of memorabilia, and a lot of amps and, and guitars from musicians. You know, we've got one of David Allen Coe's old bass players' basses down there on the floor, and we've got a lot of Black Oak, Arkansas's basses and guitars and amps from yeah, Black Oak and Judas Priest, and you know, we've got one upstairs that Stone Temple Pilots used to play with long, long ago when they were just starting up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, guitars signed by, you know, B.B. King and Wes Paul. And, you know, we've got one over there actually for sale. It's signed by Bruce Springsteen. And we've got David Lee Roth's cased up upstairs. And we've got clear plastic handmade one out here that was made back in the early 40s during the war in France by one of the soldiers. Wow. Uh, got all of his dog tag info and all that inside the, the body. It's the last fair going Walking around downtown in Bentonville, Arkansas, you get the sense that things are booming. There's a business behind every window and food on every corner. I asked Les what was behind the boom in downtown Bentonville. I moved away here in 94, and I think there was about uh, somewhere between 10 and 12,000 people yeah. in Bentonville. And now, in, you know, 20 years later, it's you know, topping, oh, I think we're, what, 35,000? There was absolutely nothing to do downtown. We had no restaurants downtown. We had no entertainment at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a Sonic, a McDonald's, and a, a couple of chain restaurants. And that was pretty much it. We had a, a movie theater in Rogers, and next one was Springdale or Fayetteville. So even to go to a movie, it was a half-hour drive. 
Um, so yeah, moving back now, we've got theaters, we've got, you know, we brought music back finally, so we got that going. And uh, what do you think is responsible for the, the latest boom? Uh, I think a lot of it's the the Walmart Foundation, the downtown development, and coming up with the idea of doing an arts and entertainment district and really focusing around that community was uh, was a huge hit. Uh, I think they nailed it right on the head. It makes it a lot more community involved and, and places for local businesses to fit in and not all corporate. You know, there's there's a, a way to mix that together and I think they're, they're finally hitting on that. And I think the community here was starving for it. In case you didn't already know, Bentonville is the global headquarters of Walmart. There's a Walmart of one form or another around just about every corner here. There's a supersized Walmart, a regular Walmart, a small Walmart. There's even a drive through Walmart. And there's Walmart employees everywhere who are flown into Bentonville year-round for training and conventions. We even heard a Walmart employee chant in our hotel. And once inside the Walmart Museum downtown. Here's Sam Walton talking about his early success after opening his five-and-dime store. I've been terrible about setting goals all my life and, and, and trying to get there. And one of my one of my goals, as you well know, was to make that the best store in Arkansas. That's right. And we got there before we left town. We came, became the biggest store, most profitable uh, Ben Franklin store in the state of Arkansas. We knew so little about the variety store business that we had to take the book that was written by Ben Franklin and, and, and apply the principles and apply the, the controls that, and the merchandise uh, merchandising programs that, that they outlined for us. As of 2014, Walmart employs 2.2 million associates worldwide and serves more than 200 million customers each week at more than 11,000 stores in 27 countries. And it all started right here in Bentonville. As I'm sure you can imagine, it's brought a lot of money to the area. Over 1,300 businesses have moved here just to work with Walmart, and people from all over the world are moving here just to get a piece of the action. Early in our story about Bentonville, we had the chance to catch a comedy show that opened with a young and upcoming comedian, Raj Shurish. Now, Raj tells jokes about cats, Adele, being Indian, Ikea furniture, and a lot more. He usually finds himself tackling current affairs, pop culture obscurities, and delivering his outsider perspective of America. And he also happens to live in Bentonville, Arkansas. I asked him what he thought about the Bentonville boom, what it was like coming to America for the first time, and what it's like being a stand-up comedian from India living in middle America. I only got to the United States six, seven years ago. came here for college. Um, I went to Penn State and then moved around for work. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of awkward. I never thought I'd be in a position in life where moving to Arkansas would, would become a sort of major decision for me and uh, a good decision at that. I mean, I didn't start doing stand-up until I got here, and, and it was mostly accidental. I was born in India and lived there till three, uh -huh. um, moved to an island in the Persian Gulf. It's called Bahrain. It's, it's really small and uh, quite peaceful. It's like Manhattan in some regards, but warm. Um, it's really, really small. It's probably the size of one, two, three counties combined. A lot of sun, um, a lot of uh, very diverse people around me. So I grew up around Indian people, Arab people, British, Irish. It's like right there in, in the middle of everything. So that's kind of where I was for a long time. And then I ended up going back to India for high school. So it was, um, you know, a lot of movement early on. And so I think that's one of the things that sort of helped me hit ground no matter what I'm, where I'm going or what the city is. 
and uh, try to try to make the best of it in any situation, really. And then, how did you come to America? What was that that process like? How did when did you first realize you were coming here? Um, and then, how was that transition? You know, I didn't. <laughs> it was weird. Like when it came to college applications, I was pretty disconnected from the whole thing. My cousin, who's older than me, picked out like three or four places that he thought I should apply. So I applied to some places in the UK, um, some places in the US, Singapore. And um, I think I, I also applied to Australia. So I was pretty str- spread across the map. I could have really ended up anywhere. Um, I finally ended up at Penn State just because, you know, it, it ranked well. It seemed like a good place to study business. And uh, I just like the weather better than, than it is in the UK. It's not raining all the time. So <laughs> it's, it's a little bit better. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib, and we're on the road in Bentonville, Arkansas. That was comedian Raj Suresh talking with our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, about coming to America for the first time. When we come back, we'll talk to Raj about living in Bentonville, what it's like being a stand-up comedian from India, living in middle America. I sunrise creeping in Everything changes like the Desert wind Here she comes And then she's gone again And I'm just a traveler On this earth Showing my heart Behind the pocket of my shirt I just keep rolling Till I'm in Cause I'm a traveler Our American Stories, and we're talking with Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience, the Atlanta Falcons, and we just learned about his trek through his life, a journalism degree at Syracuse, where my goodness, not only being surrounded by excellence in that department, but my goodness, what a sports town, what a great college town for sports. Jim Beheim's remarkable basketball teams, a pretty serious football team. By the way, Jim Brown, the great NFL running back, is a graduate of Syracuse. Not only one of the great professional football athletes, one of the great NFL backs, but also a remarkable lacrosse player. I've just been reading about Jim Brown's life, and we're going to be doing a feature on him. So, so Mike, you, you end up in Atlanta in this job. Talk about what, what is at the core of, of your function. What are you guys trying to do? What we, what we were alluding to before uh, the break was that the price of so many concessions uh, at so many professional games make the parent feel either poor or guilty, and then they whip out that charge card, and then when that bill comes in the mail, they go, my goodness, I don't know if I can do that again, and I know I speak for a lot of families. Uh, talk about that discussion that you must have been having uh, with senior management at the Falcons. Uh, sure. You know, when, when we go to any sporting events, you know, even myself, right, as a fan, Food and beverage is part of the experience. It's a day out. It's an evening out. It's entertainment, um, whether it's a concert or, or, uh, or a sporting event. And in all of the research that we do, that becomes an important part of overall satisfaction um, is food and beverage or, or concessions, depending on your, your point of view. Um, as we further looked at the research, it continues to score the lowest. Uh, amongst all of the different elements that comprise satisfaction on game day. And to no surprise, as you just mentioned, pricing's at the top of that list. Um, you know, the, the, the prices feel like we're being gouged. Yep. Uh, it's not affordable. If, 
you know, if I'm just buying a, you know, a beer or a, or a soda and a hot dog for myself, that's one thing. If I'm coming with my, my wife and kids, well, now I'm, you know, footing the bill for all five of them. And you're right. I mean, you, you get a ridiculously small amount of, of food and beverage for what seems to be an egregious price. We looked at that and said, wait a minute, there has to be a different way to execute this. There has to be something that can be done to treat this in a more fan-friendly fashion. And from Arthur Blank, who prided himself as he founded the Home Depot based on the customer service ethic uh, that he holds so dear, he challenged us to think of a different model. And uh, Rich McKay, who's our president and CEO, you know, really continued to push the envelope and said, how can we charge prices that aren't just fair, but eye-poppingly appropriate for fans, not compared to what you would pay in an arena or a ballpark or a stadium, but compared to what you'd pay in a local quick service restaurant or at a convenience store. Mm-hmm. No reason to charge $5 for a soda, $4 for water, $6 for a hot dog. We all know we're being gouged. So we decided to do what we call fan-first pricing, um, which, uh, which will start to sell products in a, in a level that you've never seen really in a stadium. $2 for a hot dog. Two dollars for a soda that's refillable, two dollars for, uh, you know, for chips, three dollars for fries, three dollars for, you know, for a, for a for a hot pretzel, two dollars for popcorn, something where you can actually now get a hot dog, fries, and a coke, uh, and get that for your entire family of four for under thirty dollars. Wow! Uh, has has received. Listen, did we know we were doing something great for the fans? Absolutely. Did we expect the national? viral aspect of this to take off the way it did, well, it's exceeded our expectations. And, you know, we're happy to talk about it because we think we're doing something great for our fans. Well, and you are, Mike. And I'm telling you, that, that experience you have as a dad, and you know this, we've all been there in our lives. We can't afford something. And we know the price is ridiculous. And those little kids are looking at you, Daddy, I just want a soda and a hot dog. And so you do it. And you can't. And you're so mad. And you feel violated, actually, at that point, like $4 for water. You're just going, that's just so wrong on so many levels. And I'm a fan. So they're taking advantage of my fandom, Mike. I think that's what really cuts to the core of that. That's right. You know, we're not the only industry where where that has happened. I mean, go to the movie theater. I've been complaining about movie theater prices since I was a kid. Here I am, 30-plus years later. Movie theaters haven't changed their pricing models, right? So so this isn't – our approach wasn't to try to save the industry. We are by no means – magnanimous at that level right right? that's for uh, there's other (laughs) business models there's other business considerations that each team each stadium will have to consider and and i don't i'm not trying to put myself in their shoes for us it was all about our fans our atlanta falcons fans our atlanta united fans and what what uh what the way we approach this is anybody who shows up at the new mercedes-benz stadium uh which is when this will take effect when when the stadium opens in 2017 any customer, any fan, any guest becomes our guest, whether they're there for the SEC championship game, whether they're there for the Final Four, or whether they're there for the Super Bowl. So these are the same prices that will be charged regardless of the event, whether it's a high school football championship or the Super Bowl, the prices I just talked about, uh, which will apply across our entire menu, where the food will be priced in a very fair way, and if we go get a local specialty restaurant that charges seven dollars for a you know pulled pork barbecue sandwich at their restaurant, you'll be charged seven dollars in our stadium. There's not going to be a stadium markup unnecessarily applied, and it'll apply to every event, every type of of, uh, of guest or customer or fan 
that shows up to our stadium. So we, this is this is applicable beyond just the Atlanta Falcons. You know, Mike, it'll be interesting to see if people actually buy more product and in the end that there's not necessarily a dip in your revenue because people will order that extra dog or buy that extra soda. I think that'll be, a, you, you know, do you have any preconceptions about what that might look like and how you're making up the revenue in other areas? I mean, you, ultimately, you're in a business to make a profit. Those athletes don't come cheap. My goodness, those coaches aren't cheap. And you're in the talent business in the end on the executive level and on the athlete level. You know, talk about that and, and, and what your projections are given this, this new change. Yeah, so I'll talk about it through two perspectives. One is from a revenue perspective, if you look at the way, and we'll focus on the NFL, right, the TV contracts that get struck with the DirecTVs and, and NBCs and ESPNs um, flows a significant amount of revenue to all of the NFL teams. Your sponsorship revenue is also a big chunk. Your ticket revenue is a big chunk. At the end of the day, food and beverage is a relatively, really small amount. So to try to gouge fans when it really doesn't amount to be a significant part of your revenue was no longer was not a driver for us. So therefore, we could really focus on the fan aspect of this and not the quote unquote lost revenue. So that that's one point. The other piece is um, where we do expect to see an increase of demand. Uh, we've had to model a variety of different um, of options because to just sell these products at low prices and not contemplate how you lay out the entirety of your program uh, to ensure that lines move quickly, food can be processed quickly, but you can maintain high quality is critical. So in other words, every stadium could just simply lower prices. But if they see a 20, 30 increase in demand, they won't be able to handle it. And now fans will be frustrated. You bet. I wish you just pulled a $5 hot dog because I don't want to wait 20 minutes. Right. <laughs> so my Disney background is, is making me think, of the discipline that Disney uses to try to ratchet seconds out of every single transaction because seconds end up equaling minutes when you compound them over thousands and thousands and thousands of fans in a small amount of time. So the amount of points of sale that we're putting in the new stadium, which amounts to be more accessibility across all three main layers of the, of the stadium, 100, 200, and 300 levels, increased by 65% as compared to the, to the current home of the Atlanta Falcons, the Georgia Dome. And um, the way in which we're doing soda is uh, uh, fans will be able to get their sodas, but we're, we're not going to fill sodas behind the counter. You'll be able to go fill it yourself at um, self-service stations at, spread throughout the building. And if you want to get a refill, you want to top that off before you leave the building, go ahead and do it. It's, it we're not going to charge you a subsequent transaction. We're not putting an RFID chip in the cup to validate are you allowed to get one <laughs> refill or many. We've really tried to focus this on the fans, but at the same time, we have to design the building to be as efficient as possible because that's the, the number two issue for fans. Our lines are too long, right? So we can't just address pricing. We've got to address all the pain points, variety, quality, length of lines, and as we've already announced, we're hitting affordability uh, straight on. You bet. And we're talking to Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience, the Atlanta Falcons, and just one, if you could answer in maybe 30 or 45 seconds, Mike, and I know we're putting you on the spot, but Arthur Blank is the co-founder of Home Depot, and my goodness, we did an hour on him and Bernie Marcus a couple of weeks ago, and the customer service ethos of Home Depot, and it was just astonishing, and how much does he drive this 
this ship in this respect, Mike? How much of this comes from Arthur? It it, shows, it comes straight from the top. This is not a in in uh, an idea that germinated from the ground floor and had to go up through Arthur. This is the challenge Arthur set forth. It's the reason, quite frankly, I'm in the role that I'm in. Is that's how important he thinks of the customer experience of the fan experience that he wanted somebody brought in to help work across the entire organization to ensure every single aspect of the stadium experience was either optimized or, quite frankly, in the case now of food and beverage, reimagined to really drive fan value that doesn't compare us to hopefully other stadiums but compares us to those great customer experience organizations, you know, to the Apples of the world, to the Starbucks of the world, to the, to the Disneys of the world. And that's what we're aspiring to do. But it does come directly from Arthur's bold vision. Yeah, so much does. The leadership uh, means everything in life. And you were lucky enough to work at Disney, uh, where there was great leadership. And then under the, under the tutelage of Arthur Blank, one of America's great businessmen. Mike, we look forward to coming to Atlanta and catching a game. We're in Oxford, Mississippi. We're not far away. Mike Gomes, Senior Vice President of Fan Experience, Atlanta Falcons. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Oh, thanks so much for having us. I appreciate it. You bet. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.